I want to introduce you at this time to a family. Kaisers, I want you guys to come on up. Believe it or not, I knew Daniel and Andrea. And Andrea was a freshman in college. She was 18 years old. Daniel was a junior, right? Junior in college. Daniel and Andrea are two folks that helped actually start New Community, along with a number of other folks. And uh, ever since I've known them, there's two things that have been sort of at the core of their heart. One is to be overseas. And to serve God somewhere. And, and they've gone. At one point it was possibly Indonesia. At one point it was possibly South America. And they'd always had heart for Africa. And uh, looks like God is confirming that call. Along with the heart for overseas sort of global ministry or mission. The other thing they've always had a heart for is for orphans. It's always lay at the heart core of who they are. And uh, known both of these guys for years and I've rarely met people whose, whose heart beat as passionately as theirs for orphans. Um, I'm not going to steal your thunder so you guys get to share about what it is that you're going to be doing and where you're going. But uh, they uh, have been preparing essentially for all these years for God's call to send them overseas somewhere. And in the last two years or so, God has kind of narrowed their call to uh, a place in Africa called Uganda, and they will be leaving, Lord willing, sometime this year. And so I'm going to have them share a little bit about where they're going, what they're going to be doing, and then we'll share a couple prayer requests, and then we're going to pray for this family as we send them out as part of New Community. Good morning. Um, We hope to leave for Uganda in uh, September. Uh, We'll be serving with international teams, an organization based out of Elgin. Our vision is really twofold. The first is the first part of that is uh, to establish a shelter to care for the immediate needs of orphans who are dying, um, things like cholera, um, starvation, and HIV. And the other side of that is we hope to mobilize the the church in Uganda so that orphans are cared for and loved in the same way that God loves us. And uh, as Pastor Peter, you know, when God gives you a vision, it's very humbling, and um, because it's not anything that we can do. That's right. That's right. Uh, so our heart, our prayer is exactly that song. Yeah. You know, yeah. That God yeah. would change our hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that we can do what He has called us to do. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And Andrea, maybe you could share a little bit with us why um, why such passion for orphans and where where is that birth out of? Didn't know you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Uh, We've met with a lot of the community groups who have been awesome to us. So a lot of you know my story already. So my parents and my sister died when I was 14, and I was actually in the car accident with them. So it's just a miracle that I'm here today, and I think that God has always reminded me that I'm alive for a reason, the same as each of you. There is a reason and a purpose that God has created us. Amen? And so every pain in our life never goes to you, never goes to waste because God has a plan and a purpose for that. And so I believe when someone told me your greatest ministry comes from your greatest pain, I was finishing up my trip in Africa. And so that just clicked. And I said, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to go and work with orphans. And I literally didn't tell a soul, came back to campus and met this guy. 
who said, I'm from Brazil. I said, great. I speak Portuguese. That's great. And then he said, I want to work with orphans. And that just blew me away. So I was like, all right, God, I see what you're doing. So that's the rest of the story. And um, so we've been working on this for years and just following God. And here we are. Yeah, yeah. Um, share with us some of the ways we could be praying for you and supporting you. And just to let you guys know, there are a number of families and folks that we support both locally and globally as a church, financially and prayer support-wise. Because that is one of our, one of our passions, is to, is to be able to live out this mission and vision that we are sent people. And so even as you hear their prayer requests for ways that we can be supporting them, you guys need to be attentive to the voice of God and be asking, God, could you be sending me to a place as well? If not here in Chicago, somewhere. So what are ways we could be praying for you guys? I think the number one way that you can pray for us is just that we would be totally captivated by the love of God Hmm. and totally filled with the love of God that everything we do does not come out of our own strength, but as an overflow of what God has poured into us through what he's done through Jesus on the cross and in our lives. Amen. Um, And number two, just pray for our kids that they'll also just fall in love with Jesus and that they will be his little witnesses all over Uganda and with the orphans and with everyone they see. Um, And the last thing that's really, really important for us um, is team unity. So some of you may know the number one reason why missionaries return home from overseas or from the field that they're on is because of team conflict. So it's not because they get homesick or they don't like the food or they run out of funds. It's because of, I feel like the enemy's always working to divide and distract us. That's right. So just pray a covering over our team. That would be huge. Okay. Okay. And at this time, I want to invite uh, some of you guys that have been friends and family with Daniel and Andrea to come join us up here. Okay. I'm a little, I'm a little nervous about doing this because I know the role that these guys have played in so many people's lives to join us. Okay. This is just a, a, a moment for us to be able to pray for them today. When they actually go, we are going to have a send-off service and commission them officially. But uh, it's a great day for us to be able to... Yeah. Yeah. They will be available after the service, okay, to be able to connect and talk with anybody that has questions, okay? Join us as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for Daniel and Andrea and the rest of their family. God, Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in their hearts. And God, it's clear even as we hear them share how deeply their passion burns for you. It's clear, God, even as our hearts being touched by just their words for their love for you, their singular focus on you and for your gospel to be shared and proclaimed and demonstrated throughout the ends of the earth. And God, we, as their church, as their family, come around them today and we pray. Father, we know that you are going to use them mightily and powerfully. That the fatherless, the widows, the orphans, the ones that your scripture tells us you are most keenly for, most keenly interested in, the defender of, 
God, as they go and become your hands, your feet, your mouth, we pray and ask, God, that you would demonstrate and declare the amazing love, reconciling love of Jesus to every person that would encounter them. We even thank you for this testimony up on this stage and the lives that they've touched even here already before they go. We thank you for the work. And God, we lift them up to you today and we pray and ask that you would be with them. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. It's getting emotional hearing Andrew and Daniel share. Um, they're practically like family. Uh, I was fortunate enough to officiate their wedding and, and uh, dedicated all their kids here. And so we're going to miss them, but we're also excited about who God is and, and what he's going to do. Were any of you guys encouraged by what you guys heard? Daniel, Andrea? Yes? <laughs> You know, they, they are a great sort of reminder for me. They're, they're kind of the, the types of, let me tell you what they did, okay? When Josiah, their first son, was born, okay? And this is kind of, a, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big wimp when it comes to stuff like this. They wanted on an expedition trip to Africa, okay? So they wanted to find out sort of a different team in a place where it was appropriate. So they took their eight-month-old son, okay? Flew to Africa, okay? Jenny and I dread flying our kids to like Indiana. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's... Like, woe for us. They flew 18, 20-hour flight, and then they took him in a car, right, and drove like 8 to like 12 hours straight to go to this remote place in the middle of nowhere. Like, I just look at them and I go, man, (laughs) that that challenges me. When I I see folks like that do that, you know, I'm a a big one. I've been on plenty of mission trips overseas, but that kind of stuff. Uh, And as I think about them, I'm reminded of this powerful truth. And it's so appropriate for what we're talking about in the book of Acts today. For many of us, when we think of faith, it's a noun. But Daniel and Andrea, people like them, remind me and remind us that faith is not a noun. Faith is a, a verb that denotes action. See, for many of us, it's the whole, hey, I have faith. I believe the right things, you know. I know it in Greek. Let's get people together and study that, you know, so we gain more knowledge, so on and so forth. And then there are some crazies among us who look at faith and they say, faith is not a noun that I know I have. Faith is a verb and it pushes me out and it denotes action. That's the book of, oh, well, look at that. The book that we've been studying is called the book of? It's a book of? Acts. It's not a book of, think about this, doctrine. It's not a book of theology. It's not a book of history. It's a book of? Acts. The whole book denotes action, which then comes to us and we ask the question, what does my Christian life look like? What does my life as a follower of Jesus look like? What does my faith look like? Is it safe? Is it comfortable? Is it contained? Is it sanitary? Or is my faith 
dirty, grunt. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm like losing myself in the metaphors. Y'all following me, right? It's my faith, one that's faith, dirty, grimy. It's my faith, one that's sort of this pristine thing that I know, right? Believe, uh, or it's my faith on a daily basis pushes me out beyond my comfort zones that results in radical living for Jesus. To many of us, faith is a noun. To many of us, faith is a noun. Never meant to be. It was never meant to be. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We are continuing our series, and we are going to finish this chapter today. Yes, we are. Acts chapter 19. Paul is where? In the city of? City of Ephesus, okay, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been plugging, pl- pl- plodding along in the book of Acts, and we come to Paul's uh, third missionary journey as he ventures out, and he finds us on the city of Ephesus, and we saw last week that the city of Ephesus was a city full of the occult, full of superstition. There are two uh, occult or cults that kind of dominated the everyday life of the people in the city. One were the imperial cults, worship of emperors, and there were three temples dedicated to that. But, the, but the, the, the prize of the city was the temple of Artemis, or temple of Diana in Latin. This sucker is, was four times the size of the Parthenon, to which you say that means nothing to me. Here's how big this temple was. It was the size of three times bigger than a football field. That's how big this temple was, Okay. It was known as sort of the seventh wonder of the world. And it drew literally hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world that wanted to visit this temple. And as a result, there was a thriving economy based on this temple, which we're going to get into today. Shrines were sold. Idols of, by the way, the way that they came to kind of worship this idol of Diana was a meteorite, scholars say, meteorite fell from the sky and landed and hit Ephesus, right? And this meteorite looked like this goddess with, well, lots of, Lots of breasts. Okay? That's why breasts. Breasts. Yeah. That's why, that's why it was a fertility goddess, okay? So it was this gross-looking thing, right? So they made these little statues and I have, of these things, and they sold it. All these people came. Why are you laughing? All these people came, and they bought it. Because, check this out, a family couldn't have kids. So what did they do? They prayed to the goddess of Diana and said, will you give us a uh, farmers, the land didn't produce. So they prayed to this goddess of Diana and said, would you help there to be good produce? It dominated and ruled the economy. And last week, what did we see? Gospels preach, people are converted, they're confessing their evil deeds in public, burning scrolls worth millions of dollars. And today we come to what happens as a fallout of that. Here we go. Verse 23. I'm just going to read the entire passage, make comments here and there, and then we'll pick up some principles that we can learn. Chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, that is after this huge revival, renewal is breaking out in Ephesus, there arose a great disturbance about the way. People are getting saved. Lives are being challenged and changed. And there is a dramatic shift in the entire culture of the city. Can you imagine what would happen to Chicago? If such a renewal revival broke out in this city and Christians really began to live their lives out, 
for the honor and holiness of God. And as a result, the entire city began changing. How did the city change? Check this out. Verse 24. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Demetrius looks like was probably the head of a, a, a silversmith guild or silversmith union in Ephesus. And he's freaking out because their business is tanking. People aren't buying idols anymore. People aren't going to the temple anymore. And he's saying, we don't like what's going on. We're about to lose our business. We're about to lose our jobs. This Paul guy is causing a lot of trouble with the gospel of Jesus. Verse 25, he called them together along with the workmen and related trades and said, by the way, this is my impression of Demetrius. This is how I see him sounding. Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this Philippolis convinced led us to a large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. (laughs) So here's the deal, right? So you read his words. Stop. I had to entertain myself somehow. Okay, so, so so here's what's going on, right? What's his motive for why he's getting upset? Say it. It's money. He says in verse 25, he says, men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. But as he's talking to these guys, he cloaks it in good language, isn't it? He appeals to the honor of their trade. He says, we are proud, silversmiths. We make good idols. Our trade is getting a bad reputation. Or he appeals to their civic religious pride. Our goddess, God forbid, our goddess, her name will be dishonored. But at the end of the day, what is he really upset about? Again, economic ramifications. It was front and center. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. By the way, there was a prayer. It was a chant. Okay? So they're not just randomly saying it. They're saying this chant. They're saying this prayer. Okay? Verse 29. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. The theater sat anywhere from 24 to 40,000 people. And scholars say it was a marvel of acoustics. Literally, you could sit at the top of the theater that seats 24 to 40,000 people, and a person on stage could be whispering like this, and everybody could hear them. Verse 30. Paul wanted to appeal before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. You know, one thing, I can't wait to meet Paul someday because Paul is a tough guy. Paul is a tough guy. You read about him. He gets stoned and beaten and thrown out of the city, right? What does Paul do? Gets right back in the city and goes up, right? Paul says, I don't care if there's a mob of 40,000 people that can rip me to shreds. I'm going. And his friends are like, yo, Paul, no, no, no. And I was just reminded of this, you know, and why this is important for me. Because some of you guys get really discouraged because you have friends and family and other people you're witnessing to. And they are intellectually and spiritually completely closed off to the gospel. Almost irrationally. Y'all have friends like that? Anybody? Right? And you go, what in the world is going? Well, 
Acts tells us over and over again that it is a common occurrence. That people are that blind to the gospel. And it may not be driven out of sincere hearts. This is a power play. I don't want anything to do with it. And sometimes unfortunate because Christians make themselves sort of the doormat. Look, it's never loving to let somebody sin against you. Can I say that again? It's never loving to let someone sin against you. You have to have wisdom and discernment to go. And Paul did that. Early on in Acts chapter 9, he says he left them. Complete closed off to the gospel. Say, I'm praying for you, but uh, I'm not going to let you continue to. So, let's go on. Verse 31. Even some of the officials of the province of friends sent him a message and begging him not to venture into the theater. Apparently, Paul had friends in the government. I love that. I love that. You know, I love that because we need Christians everywhere. Okay? Keep going. The assembly was in confusion. (laughs) Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they're there. (laughs) I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. Right? As with mobs, the issues aren't even clear. There's like 40,000 people possibly in the theater. They're shouting and they're looking at you going, what are we shouting about again? What are we shouting about again? Yes, great is the, what are we shouting about? Absolute, utter, total confusion, right? Verse 33, and this is interesting. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. Now listen, this is very important. We've seen throughout the book of Acts how the primary thorn on the side for Paul in terms of opposition to the gospel doesn't come from Gentiles. Who does it come from? Jews. So there are a bunch of Jews in Ephesus who are also hostile to the gospel. But here's what's going on. They're in the audience. They're saying, we don't want to be swept along with this crowd and be put in the same category. They got to know we're Jewish, but we're not like Paul Jewish. So who can we get to defend our people? Alexander, you're a good speaker. Go up and defend us. So they push Alexander, this guy random up to the front, and he motions with his hand. That's how you quiet an audience, right? So he's apparently an experienced speaker. He goes, and everybody hushes. Here's what happens. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. <laughs> I've been to Cubs games. I've been to Sox games. Try shouting, let's go Cubs, let's go Cubs for two hours and see what that does to your brain. (laughs) We've been doing that for a hundred years and it doesn't work. Okay, anyway, (laughs) verse 35. Verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? The town clerk was like a city manager in the United States, right? Kept the city running properly. Verse 36, therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. He's saying literally, calm down, people. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. In other words, they didn't break any laws. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls and there they can press charges. He's saying you can't have any legal sort of charges, but if you have a civil charge, take the right route. Go to the courts, verse 39. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. 
as it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. Ephesus apparently was a free city. The Roman government enabled this to bring a free Greek city. And literally what this town clerk is saying, we enjoy the freedom here. The government leaves us alone. And we like it that way. This may cause them to come and say, free city no more. We're taking over. And he says, we all need to chill out. Verse 41 then, after he had said this, he said, everybody, just go home. And they all left. Principles. This is funny. This is the fun, interesting thing about stories is that you read the story, right? You read the story, but there are hidden principles underneath. And there's three. Because all good sermons have three points, right? So <laughs> here's three. Actually, there's like six, but I, I narrowed it down to three. Here's the first one. If you want to encounter Christ, avoid mob mentality. Let me put the principle out front and then we'll talk about it, okay? If you are somebody who wants to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus, then you're going to have to guard yourself from falling prey to what we'll call mob mentality with your peer group, no matter what that peer group is. If you are somebody who is not able to think independently, you are not somebody who is inner strength strong enough to think and act independently out of that crowd, whether it be conservative or liberal, very religious church communities or irregular, irregular secular communities, if you are not able to think independently, act independently, and go along with the crowd, you may miss Jesus. Let me press further. If it is more important to you that you rise the level of corporate ladder or your job success, regardless of what your convictions are, you are likely going to miss an encounter with Jesus. If what your peer group that you're a part of says is more important and valuable to you than what God says, you are likely going to miss an encounter with Jesus. If you are somebody who is afraid to stand alone, if you are somebody who is afraid to make strong decisions of conviction because you want a comfortable life where your decisions don't matter and the choices that you make in life don't matter, you are going to likely miss an encounter with Jesus. Should I keep going? Oh, you get the point. Mob mentality and going along with it is likely going to make you miss an encounter with Jesus. Jesus. It's interesting. Look at this crowd. There are two groups of people who didn't agree on anything who are agreeing on something. Do you notice? They're Jews. One God. The thought of worshiping a wooden figure. Ridiculous. The thought of a crucified Messiah. Repugnant. The Greeks, Ephesians, they're not monotheistic like the Jews. They're polytheists. They believe in many, many gods. Very little in common, but they agree about this. Paul and the gospel. Makes no sense. It's offensive. Uh, this dynamic of people who don't agree on anything, but agree on the ridiculousness of the gospel. Paul alluded to it when he said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, put the scripture up there, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews to men miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians while he's in Ephesus, and I wonder where is he thinking about this incident? 
Yeah, there was a time when the Greeks and Jews, nothing in common. They agreed on one thing. Gospel, cross of Jesus, ridiculous. Foolishness. There's another interesting moment when this happened. This is powerful. In Luke chapter 23, you don't have to turn about this. Luke chapter 23, Jesus has been crucified on the cross. And here's what we find. Verse 35, it says the religious, that's the Pharisees, rulers sneered. And verse 36, the Roman soldiers came and mocked him. Two people, nothing in common. Absolutely nothing in common. Hated each other. But they come together on this. Jesus, a crucified, dying savior of the world. You've got to be kidding. And the interesting thing is, then it says, the thief, one of the thieves who hung on the cross, he begins hurling insults at Jesus. He's totally missing Jesus. Why? He's going along with the crowd. Same today. People who don't, did you notice that? Is this shocking to anybody? It's interesting. I watch the news. People who don't agree on much anything else when it comes to the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ, they go, yeah. Both sides call two words. Both side political sort of parties or views. They got the church traditional moralists and the sort of secular, we don't believe in God or, or rules or so on and so forth. They stand in agreement that the gospel makes no sense. It's ridiculous. Foolishness. Why? Here's the gospel. I'll put it up there. I say this to you guys every week, right? We're going to continue to say it. Here's the definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to the whole world. And when we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record for our relationship with God, that kingdom power comes upon us and begins to work within us. Now, I put it and phrase it this way, right? So the ramification of the gospel is, even though we are more wicked and sinful than we dare believe, in Christ, we are more accepted and more loved than we dared hope at the same time. The gospel. There are a bunch of people in this country who look at that and go, I like the first part of that. We are more wicked, more sinful than we dare believe. But the second part of that, that's offensive to me. I'm not really digging that. What you mean in Christ by faith alone, you're accepted, you're loved completely. No, you got to earn it. You got to work for it. You got to right behavior, weight to it. You got to be on the right side of the cultural issues for God to accept you. You hear where I'm going, right? So there's a bunch of group of people in our church, even, who think that the universal religion of the world, and when I say religion in our church, and I need to clarify today, we're not talking about major faith systems like Buddhism, religion. Religion is a mindset that says, if I obey, God accepts me. If I obey, God loves me. If I do the right things, God blesses me and saves me. But, check this out, my life stinks. Things aren't going well. Where's the justice in that? The bunch of you sitting here today, you're this close to saying, chuck it with the Christian life. You know why? You're not gospel-centered believing. You are religious to the core. Your whole mindset is, I obey, I'm a good person, I'm moral. I don't do the bad things that I, I do the right things. But my life is not turning out the way it's supposed to be. Where's the justice in that? You know why? Fundamentally, from the bottom of your heart, your attitude is, God owes me. You're sitting in today and you're struggling with God because your attitude is, you owe me. God says, Why? Because I'm good. I obey. I go to church. I've kept out of trouble. I'm sexually pure. I don't do drugs. Alcohol. I don't go. So you own religion. And if that's you, 
And people in our church go, why do you constantly talk about that? Can you talk about something else? There is nothing else. Do you, this is what ails you. This is why you're spiritually sick. This is why you're anxious. This is why you're angry. This is why you're worried. At the bottom of your heart, you're not changed by the gospel. You're religious. Okay. Tale of the tape. Religion versus gospel. Here it is. You're going, what's the difference? I'll put it up there. Brief review for some of you. Again, if you're going, can't you talk about something else? There is nothing else. I'll show you. Watch. Religion says that you should trust in what you do as a good moral person. The gospel says you should trust in the perfectly sinless life of Jesus because he is the only good and truly moral person who ever lived. And all the gospel-believing people in the church says, hmm. Yeah, exactly. Second, religion said the world is filled with good people and bad people. Come on. How many of you guys are sitting here today and you're categorizing the world into good people, bad people? And you go, how do you judge them? And you go, well, I have a list. Your list? Yeah, I have a list of certain things that good people don't do and certain things that bad people do. And so therefore, I sit in judgment. It's this imagery. You lean against the cross and you point fingers at who comes and who doesn't. The gospel, we all kneel before the cross. Because we're all sinners. And we say there's room. And all the gospel-believing people in the church said, uh-huh. Religion says, if we obey God, he will love us. The gospel says, it is because God has loved us through Jesus that we can obey. Oh, my gosh. See, can I, can I tell you something? I know we're all reserved, Asian, you know. But you know what? If the God... If the God if you're going, uh, how do you explain you? I, I can't explain you, okay? Me. The gospel-believing people hear that, and part of you would want to just jump out of your seat right now, right? Fourth, the goal of religion is to get from God such things as health, wealth, insight, power, and control. The goal of the gospel is not the gifts God gives, but rather God himself is a gift given to us by sheer grace. No, 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 no. See, you think you believe it, but you don't. Let me give you an example. Here's how we've twisted this, right, in the church. We go to singles, just like single ladies. And we've actually in the church taught that if you are content, God will give you a man. <laughs> ladies, clap if you've heard that along those lines. Church, if I ever say that, well, I, I, I dare one of you singles to go, heretic! Because that's it's not what I, what I believe. So here's what we do. Here's what we do, right? We say that. So in the church, you know what we have? We have lots of single women who pretend to be content so God could send them a man. <laughs> I, I, I'm content, Lord. I, I am satisfied in you. Where, where is he? Where is he? Do you hear that? Do you, do you, hear, do you hear that, right? Thank you, Father. You are my all. And do you hear that? Where, 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 where is? I talk to single women in our church who are bitter and angry because they're going, are you telling me that God would dare to have me be single for the rest of your life? To which I say, marriage is a wonderful blessing, but there are some folks who will not get married. Is God enough for you? See how we twist this? 
God, if I'm content, then you will. Oh, Lord. So we pretend to be content. Okay, since I picked on the ladies, just the guys real quick. Guys, can I just say something to you, please? This has nothing to do with today's sermon, but can I just say something to you? The thing with guys is, Lord, if it's the right person at the right time, you'll just send her to me, Lord. <laughs> guys, how many of you guys have said that? Clap. Okay, one person. Okay. Here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that. You don't do that about your dinner. Lord, I'm hungry. I'm real hungry, Lord. Send me some dinner. What do you do? You get up, you go in the kitchen, you make something. Guys, guys, can I just say something to you? It is absolutely poor theology to go, if it's the right time, the Lord will send her something to me. Grow a pair and pursue a woman. Religion versus the gospel. I've been asked by people to do like a month-long sermon series on relationships. I'll be completely honest with you. I could very easily do that. I could talk about it for hours, but here's the problem. If at the bottom of your heart, fundamentally, God is not enough, you will never be happy. There are parents here who say, I'll never be happy unless we have a child. There are women, single men and women here, I'll never, until I get married, if God is not enough for you, you will never be happy. Religion, next, leads to an uncertainty about my standing before God because I never know if I've done enough to please God. So you're constantly insecure. The gospel leads to a certainty before about my standing before God because of the finished work of Jesus on my behalf on the cross. And all God's people said, hey, that's great news. Religion ends either in pride because I think I'm better than other people or despair because I continually fall short of God's commands. Gospel ends in humble, confident joy because of the power of Jesus at for me, at work in me, at work through me, and at work despite me. That is good news. There is joy that springs from our hearts when we know that God's grace is deeper than my guilt. God's grace is wider than all my wanderings. God's grace is stronger than my weaknesses. And God's grace is greater than any sin that I struggle with. And when you know that, the result is joy, unspeakable joy. The difference between a religious person and a gospel-believing person. A religious person is that piano student who plays all the right notes. Gospel-believing person is the one who makes music. Religious person is a person like in a B-rated movie who woodenly recites the lines to make sure I'm... Gospel-believing person is the one that cuts loose, creates... Religious person, you're like that dancer who's counting your steps. Gospel-believing person, you dance and you dance and you dance. He's sitting there today going, or he's sitting there going today, can you believe it? I'm a Christian. Me. I'm a Christian today. Lastly, religion sees hardships as punishment for sin. 
Gospel sees hardship as sanctified affliction, an opportunity to share in Christ's suffering in order that he, we may be conformed to his likeness in a greater way. You see, when religion circumstances go wrong in my life because I believe that I'm accepted because I obey, because I'm a good person I obey, when things go wrong in my life, we either get really angry at God. Some of you are mad at God today. Why? Because you're saying, I've been good. I've been moral. I've been following the right rules. But my life isn't going the way it ought to. And at the end of the day, you're saying, God, you owe me. Can I say this lovingly and yet boldly? God doesn't owe us jack. He does that for me in my mud, in my stuff. And God delivers me purely out of grace and mercy. Sets my feet, as the scripture says, on firm foundation. How do I look at God and go, you've done enough? Or we get really angry at ourselves, religious people, because we're going, I'm not doing enough. I should do more. What am I not doing? Oh, if I only would have done better. And you beat yourself up. Gospel-believing people expect suffering and hardships to come our way. Do you know why? The Bible says that's the avenue for us to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Sanctified affliction. And sure, we struggle when hard times come. We're not fake people, plastic smog on. It doesn't bother me. No, we struggle. But at the end of the day, there's deep abiding peace that says, he loves me. And he's never letting me go. Not through this. Not through anything. If he didn't abandon me on the cross in the most painful moment of his life, why would he abandon me now? If on the cross, when he had all the opportunity to go, God, I'm done. For them, I'm done. Take me down. And he didn't. What makes you think that he's going to leave you alone in whatever it is you're going through? Religious people or gospel believing? Which are you? That's just one group of people. Here's a second group of people. <laughs> that completely think that the gospel of foolishness, okay? And it's the people that say, I like the second part of that gospel definition. We're loved. We're accepted. That's the kind of guy that I like. He loves me unconditionally. But the whole part about me being sinful, wicked, and evil? Oh, no, no. I'm not feeling that. You believe that, you're psychologically unhealthy. So I'm not feeling that. Here's the problem, though, guys. What did Jesus come preaching? Pay attention. What did Jesus come preaching? Did he say, hey, everybody, obey my teaching. Hey, everybody, here I am a good moral example. Do as I say. Look, if Jesus, all he needed to do was show us a good example, give us more information, he could have saved himself a trip in heaven. He didn't come down to earth because we just need a better example and more information. He came down because we are totally, utterly incapable of salvation on our own. And it took supernatural rescue by a loving God. Jesus Christ doesn't come and say, obey my teaching, do as I say. He comes and says, in weakness, you are so weak, you are so incapable of saving yourself that only the grace of God and only the salvation of God will do. And it's not the strong, it's not the capable who are saved. It's those who are willing to admit that they're weak, they're incapable, they're morally flawed. That the gospel says, it's yours.
See, this is why it offends the heart of the irreligious in this country. What do you mean? I have to admit that I'm a sinner? I have to admit that I'm wicked? I have to admit that I'm not all that? Yes. The cross of Jesus Christ offends our sensibilities because at the heart of the cross, this is a message that says, you can't. But he did. See, there are some gifts that can't be accepted unless you recognize that you have a need. I looked up on Google some silly book titles. Let's say you came into my office with somebody you're dating seriously and you said, Pastor Peter, things aren't going well. What's your advice? And I gave you a book titled. I got to find it. I found this book. It's perfect for you. How to avoid marrying a jerk. The foolproof way to follow your heart without losing your mind. Here, go home and read it. Most of you will be like, that's offensive. Why? Deep in our hearts, unless there's a willingness to acknowledge that we have a need, the cross will make no sense. None. So what do we have on the cross? God who says, I don't negotiate my holiness. But I'm that loving. I'm going to come down and do something that you are totally incapable of doing. I am going to take your sins and the sins of the world on me and die for it. And the way that you receive that gift is by acknowledging, A, I'm incapable, and B, you did that for me. Even though I'm more wicked and sinful than I dare believe, I am more accepted. If you go along with the religious crowd, I obey. Therefore, God accepts me. You are likely to miss an encounter with Jesus. Go along with the crowd that says, the cross, admission of my guilt, my sins. I don't like that. That's offensive. I like a God who is just loving and accepting of me no matter what. And this God says, God, acknowledge your need. I'll say it one more time. If being accepted by your peers is the most important thing to you, you're going to miss a life-changing encounter with Jesus. If you're afraid of messing up your chances of climbing up the social ladder of worldly success, you're likely to miss a life-changing encounter with Jesus. If you want to live just a comfortable life where your decisions and choices don't really matter, you're likely to miss an encounter with Jesus. If you're not prepared to stand alone, even in the midst of religious people and irreligious people, you're likely to miss an encounter with Jesus. Second principle. If you want to encounter Christ, identify and uproot idols of your life. Again, to some of you go, can't you talk about something else? Say it with me. There is nothing. It's ironic that in a city full of Diana worship, it was an idol of a different kind that lay behind this mess. Do you notice? Demetrius reveals his motives in verse 25, but he sort of shields it by saying, our civic religious pride. But at the end of the day, their motivation is money. This irrational outburst of 40,000 people, perhaps, threatening to disrupt an entire city is driven by an idol that Nobody is saying money. I talk about idolatry a lot in our church. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. There's two things that I want to quickly mention. 
What is idolatry? Idolatry is anything that you and I look at and say, if I have that, my life is significance. Idolatry is anything we look at and say, if I have that, my life is ultimate meaning. Idolatry is anything that we take that are good in and of itself and we make them ultimate things. Good things and we make them most important things. Good things and we make them the most fundamental things in our lives. Idols are things in our lives that we place to and we look to for our hope, for our significance, for our value, for our worth. Idols are anything that we look to as being more important for our happiness, contentment, satisfaction, satisfaction than God. Idolatry. Why is that important? Because what ails you and me today, many of us, what ails us today, we think it's the bad things, the wicked things out there. What ails today, us, all of us, is that we have taken perfectly good things and we've given it status. That's ultimate. What are you doing that with today? What am I doing that with today? It's interesting when you look at the Ten Commandments, and this is so, so wise of God. You ever notice the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, therefore, have no other gods before me. To which we go, okay, I know that one, let's go on. Listen, the reason why God says, have no other gods before me is because God is assuming that if you're not worshiping God, you are worshiping something else. Are you hearing me? I'm not, I'm not an idol worshiper. If you are not worshiping God, there is something else that has captured your imagination, captured your attention, that thing that you took for, look for life and significance. And the command of God is to say, what? Don't worship that God that your heart will fundamentally want to go to, but worship me instead. Romans 1.25. We will either cre- you worship the creator, worship created things. You're not a Christian here today going, the whole con- worship, I'm not a worshiper, I'm not really... You have no idea. Your heart is set on something today. Your affections are set on something today. Your identity is set on something today. Your significance is set on something today. And you are saying, if I don't have that, my life is meaningless. My life is meaningless. And here's the destructive thing about idols. Check this out. What happens when you look to something and say, if I don't have you, I'm not happy. You give that thing enormous power. You give that thing enormous. You said, without you, I'm not significant. Without you, I don't have meaning in life. Without you, my life is meaningless. When you do that to something, you're giving it enormous power and authority. So you have to obey it. You have to worship it. You have to serve it. You have to follow it. And eventually it leads to life disintegration. Why? Your idols, two things. When you fail it, when you don't come through for it, it is mercilessly cruel. Inordinate guilt. I failed in that. I don't have that. Inordinate anxiety. Inordinate worry. Inordinate fear. Inordinate. My life is absolutely totally meaningless. When you fail to get these idols, when the idols, you can't attain them, they are mercilessly cruel. But the problem is, even when you do get it, it's worse. Because you get it and you go, I needed you for life and significance. And you get it and you realize, that's it. That's it. That's it. I've looked to you. I've spent my entire life pursuing you. That's it. I have a lot of people in our church who are afraid of failure. That's not my greatest fear. Your greatest fear should not be that you would fail in life. Your greatest fear should be that you will succeed at something in life that at the end of the day doesn't really matter. Because all the false promises of that idol in your life, that person, him, her, that thing, You pursue it, you get it, and you realize your soul is too big for it. I'm not a Christian. 
I'm not religious, but my family, my family is the most important thing. How is that God going to come through for you when it lies dead in a casket? All the money in the world, success. How is that God going to come through for you when either you fail or you become successful and you realize, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Diagnostic questions, real quick. What are you daydreaming about? He's suddenly going, I don't know what my idol is. Let me help you. What are you daydreaming about? Look at your imagination. Here's an image for you, right? You're sitting at the CTA stop, right? Waiting for the L stop or the train, right? You got, you're doing nothing, there's nothing. What does your mind effortlessly just kind of go to? That's your idol. Second diagnostic question. Where do you spend your money? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We talked about that for a month, so we're going to move on. Third, what's your response to unanswered prayer? What's your response? No, no, this is one of the most important things. Unanswered prayer. Do you know why? Because if you ask for something and you don't get it, but it's not an idol in your life, you're disappointed. You're like, God, your will be done. But if it's an idol in your life, you know what? You explode with anger. How come that didn't come through for me? I thought you loved me. Speaking of anger, look at your consistent emotions. What are you most angry about? Because you are saying to yourself, I have to have this in order for me to be happy. But somebody and something is blocking me from it. And so explosive anger. Secondly, what are you most worried about? I have to have this in order to be happy. But something that I cherish is being threatened. I might lose it. And overly anxious, consumed worry. Third, what are you most despondent about? Is there something that you're telling yourself you have to have? Is that why you're so despondent? Some of you guys have beat yourself up over and over and over again. Today, you have beat yourself up and you are literally in shreds emotionally and mentally. Why? Because that God that you were pursuing didn't come through for you. And you're saying, my life is meaningless. I'm totally worthless. Oh, church. Church. Men and women of God. Men and women of God. I wish I could convince you of this. I wish I could convince you that the reason why God says, have no other gods before me. And the Bible says, because I'm a jealous God. It's not because what you're thinking, you know, God is an angry, wrathful God. And he is. No. Have you ever really been in love with somebody, like truly in love with somebody? And you see that person being abused, being manipulated, being hurt by somebody. And you're saying to that person, you're doing that to my prize creation. And your response is not one of passive, you know, your response is one of loving, explosive anger that says, you're mine. I don't want you to be in the arms of that. Being in the arms of that is destroying you. Being in the arms of that is making you anxious. Being in the arms of that is crushing you. Being in the arms of that is what's making you feel meaningless in life. It's manipulating you. It's got you enslaved. I love you too much for that. And our God, who is a jealous God, says, I want you in my arms, in my arms, in my arms. If you've ever been in love, what's the most loving thing that you could give to somebody that you love? It's not gifts. It's what? It's yourself.
We will never change, you guys, and be transformed via self-help, via trying really hard. The only way they will experience life transformation is, the Bible says, if we uproot that idol. And it's not enough just to uproot. That's repentance. Uproot. Because if we just uproot and leave a hole, some other idol is going to go. And before you know it, like, where did that come from? The Bible says of repentance, uproot, and then you replace that. That's faith with Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's the beauty of your Jesus that captures your imagination. It's the beauty of Jesus that captures affections. It's the beauty of Jesus. It's not enough just to say, I'm done with that. I don't want that. It's replacing it and saying that right there. Third, real quick. We're almost done here. Here's the third principle. The gospel results in personal and, and here's the important thing, social transformation. The gospel results in personal and social transformation. I love, 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 love seeing this throughout the book of Acts. You notice that it wasn't just people confessing their evil deeds and burning their scrolls. The gospel actually impacted the city of Ephesus so that their economy was considerably affected. It's nothing short of social transformation that Ephesus experiences. Everybody, can you look up here? Andy, hand the home stretch. Come on up. This is so important. Today's been real heavy, huh? Yeah? Real heavy? No? Some of you are like, no? Okay. Let me, I, need, I, need to end, I need to end on a heavy note. Okay, so here it is. Okay. Just kidding. It's not a heavy note. Why does the gospel end in social transformation? Please hear me. Please, church, hear me. Please hear me. This is so important. Here's why fundamentally when a group of people get converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the society around them changes. And it's not because I become a Christian, I become a nice person, and I do good things. Here's why. Fundamentally, at the core of our faith is a Savior, is Jesus, who came, and he didn't overcome his enemies in strength and looked at his followers and said, Obey me, follow me in strength, and then you can have salvation. We have a Savior who comes in weakness, gets defeated by his enemies, not overcome, defeated by his enemies. And he turns to his followers and says, here's how salvation comes in the kingdom. Not if you claim, I'm strong enough, I'm more enough to the teaching. No, if you admit that you're too weak, if you admit that you're not moral enough, that's how gracious salvation comes. So fundamentally, at the heart of our faith, guys, is a Savior who wins through losing, who comes to strength via weakness, and who comes to wealth via giving it all away. You following me? It's total reversal. Total reversal. It's a countercultural, total reversal dynamic. So those who enter the kingdom are those who follow this reversal to the culture around us and that says, I'm weak, not strong. Okay, you're in. I'm Dependent, not independent. Okay, you're in. I, I need rescue. I can't self-help, pull myself, pull straps. Okay, you, you, you're in. This salvation that enables us to enter the kingdom, reversal, check this out, doesn't end once you become a Christian. It continues every day after. Where 
we approach everything around us, our society, our culture, and the values of it, not as we used to, but we approach them with a reversal of the kingdom mindset. And you know what happens? All of a sudden, a countercultural community starts forming. Why? Because in this community, the way people approach power, success, status, wealth is not like the world. Let me give you an example. Out of the world, it's a power play. I have power. I use it to advance myself. I use it for my benefit. In the kingdom, we lay down our power. We wrap a towel and we say, I serve you. It's like a woman who shows up in church and the pastor says, not a Christian, no. Why are you at church? And she says, I work for an incredibly high uh, 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 attorney, uh, uh, a law practice. And he says, oh, really? And she says, yeah, the reason why I'm here, I'm not even a Christian, religious person. Here's why I'm here. My boss, who's like two levels ahead of me, I did something that required me pretty, pretty much to get fired, maybe even sued. Do you know what my boss did? What did he do? Uh, he covered me. He took the blame himself. A little nobody in this practice. He, 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 he went to his superiors and said, that was my fault. And she says, I've never heard of that happening in my profession ever. Power. How about success? Out in the world, success, zero tolerance for failure. Success, productivity. In the kingdom, people are willing to fail in the eyes of others in the world when we know that by failing, if we're obeying our people, the values of the kingdom, that we may lose value to the world that says, you're a failure, you're useless to us. In the kingdom, we say, success comes not by productivity and zero weakness for tolerance or failure. Success in the kingdom is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Money. Out in the world, people hoard it and say, I'm used to myself, spend it on my idols and gods. In the kingdom, people say, I follow a savior, a king who laid down all of his wealth, totally laid down all of it. And what do I do with it? I don't hoard it for myself and I say, I'm going to use it the way I want to. No, what do I do? I lay down my wealth. I don't use it to make me feel important, significant. I lay down my wealth and it results in radical generosity. Can I ask you a question? What would happen in this city if there was a group of people who not only became a Christian and entered the kingdom, but in the city, there was a group of people who really began to live their lives embracing this reversal of the values to our culture, life. What would happen to a city like Chicago because of the reversal of the cross and reversal of the kingdom? We didn't use our power and authority to advance ourselves, but we laid it down to advance those less fortunate. What would happen in this culture, in our society, in our city, if people didn't, you know, look down at people of different class, different race, because they're not, they're not our kind, but we looked at the cross and we said, you reach down to me, me. And so it levels racism and justice and we look around and say who can be beneath me are you kidding me we're all kneel before the cross and we say there's room I wonder what would happen if an alternate Chicago began forming just like an alternate Ephesus began forming because men and women of God who love Jesus began to live their lives in accordance with the radical inverse, reverse, an upside down pattern of the kingdom. And every day of their lives, not living according to the values of the culture around them, 
And what would happen if people out there looked at this little community called maybe New Community Covenant Church, an alternate city, and said, that's how a city ought to be. That's really attractive. That's really cool. People really live like that. What can I do to be a part of that? Just maybe, just maybe, you guys, the gospel wasn't just meant for us to enjoy a relationship with God. Maybe, just maybe, as followers of Jesus followed the kingdom and embraced the reversal of the values of the kingdom, just like their king, we would actually create an alternate Chicago that people would want to join. God, I thank you. I praise you. God, I have such a long way to go before uh, I know what it means to live as a radical kingdom person. Because God, the truth of the matter is, I'm still seeking my salvation and things like success and power and money and status and wealth. God, the truth of the matter is, I'm still seeking my affirmation and validation from people and things. God, the truth of the matter is I'm far from saying and being able to say you are my joy, my all in all. And God, I just uh, want to pray right now for this church. And God, I just want to pray right now for anybody, anybody sitting here today. you are speaking to and saying have no other gods before me have no other gods before me for anybody God is sitting here today saying God you know what is the true foundation of my heart and you know what I need to uproot Guys, if, uh, if there's anybody out there who's sitting here today and your spiritual life is at a ceiling, your spiritual life has hit a snag, and, and as you've been sitting here today, as you hear the voice of God, what you're hearing is, have no other gods before me. And furthermore, you're courageous enough to admit, God, there is another God that lies at the foundation it's her, him, it's my music, it's my money, it's my job, it's my morality, it's my religion. I want to pray with you, and I want you to pray for me. Just from where you're standing, will you, will you just stand, because we want to pray together. Just stand, and we want, to, we, we want to pray together. Stand from where you're at.
when my kids want to acknowledge their dependence and surrender to me, it's very common for Sophie and Parker just to do this, lift their hands up, stretch it out. And they don't have to say anything. It communicates loud and clear to their dad, to their father. I need you. I'm dependent on you. I surrender to you. Will you do that with me today? Take a, stretch your hand out to your heavenly father. And I want to give you a moment before these guys lead us in the final song. I want to give you a moment as you stretch your hand out. God already knows what your idol is. God already knows what's the foundation of your heart. God already knows. It's been waiting. Hands stretched out. Hands stretched out. Cry out to your Abba Father, your Daddy. Cry out to Him. Cast your fears. Cast your anxieties. Cast your worries. You could pray out loud if you want to. Cast your fears, cast your anxieties, cast your concerns, cast your sense of meaninglessness, hopelessness, cast all that you are wrestling with, cast control, cast whatever that is that is tearing you apart and enslaving you, hands stretched out, cry out to your Father, cry out to your loving Heavenly Father say, God, I'm tired of carrying this. I'm tired of holding this. I lift it to you. I let go. I release. I relinquish. I let go. It's yours. I need you. I need you. You are my God. You are my heavenly father. I need you. I need you. I need you. worship to our Jesus, my God, for what he has done. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you, Lord. Our God is good. His love endures forever, church. Emboldened and encouraged and filled by the the undeniable infinite love of God in your life who gave His all, who gave His all, didn't even blink. He said yes for you, for you. He loves you that much. Let that blow you away this week as you live your life. A countercultural reversal of the values of this world kind of life for the sake of his kingdom. And all God's people said, and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you Sunday.